there. Do, does anybody else have any questions? No other questions? You have, you have a question back there and you're trying to decide if you're going to ask it, Brandy, or? Yeah, maybe. Did I hear you over here? No. <laughs> good, huh? <laughs> now we're good? Okay, one last chance. Here's your chance to ask that question that you didn't ask that you were talking about over here that I didn't hear. Anybody have questions? <laughs> There were so many, uh-oh, uh-oh. There, can't remember which particular one. Okay, well let's pray and we'll get started. Father God, thank you so much for today. Um, thank you so much for this opportunity we have to hear from your word, Father. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, my rock and redeemer. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So to understand or begin to understand Ephesians 5, 15 through 21, where we're starting today, um, we kind of have to go back a ways to what uh, some theologians call the topic sentence for the second half of Ephesians. You remember that, oh no, 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 it was a great clip. But, that's, hey, it's a little different than Sesame Street, isn't it? Oh, there we go. Uh, the, go back to 4.1. You remember that the first three chapters of Ephesians were primarily theology, and then beginning in chapter 4, Paul takes a turn and begins to apply those things. And, and the topic sentence for the rest of Ephesians, <laughs> Ephesians, oh my goodness me, we're having technical difficulties all over the place. The rest of Ephesians... Um, just including what we're going to talk about today, is this verse in Ephesians 4.1. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And so throughout the rest of Ephesians, this is what Paul is fleshing out, what it means. <laughs> what? <laughs> I sound like Charlie Brown's teacher, don't I? Uh, Paul is fleshing out what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. And uh, this week's passage is going to tell us what that looks like within our families or within our personal relationships. And a lot of what Paul has been talking about in chapters 4, 5, and then into 6 has centered on this word here. It says to live a life, but literally the word is walk. And so in Ephesians 4.1, it says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And that's the first occurrence in chapters 4 and 5 of that word, live slash walk. The next occurrence we find in chapter 4, verse 17, where Paul says, do not walk as the Gentiles do. Do not walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their thinking. Uh, rather walk in holiness. And then in, verse, uh, in chapter 5, verse 2, Paul says, walk in the way of love, just as Christ did. And then in Ephesians 5, 8, he says, walk as children of light. You were once formerly, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Therefore, walk that way. Walk, live as children of light. 
And then the final verse of this, the, 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 where he mentions this word, is in verse 15 of chapter 5, where he's going to tell us to be careful how we walk or careful how we live. Verses 15 through 21 say this, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul says, be careful, be very careful how you live. I think we would say, uh, kind of a buzzword for us these days, that Paul is saying, live intentionally, live thoughtfully. Literally there, it says, watch carefully or closely how you walk. That word for careful means something that is done accurately or precisely or with great attention. It's not haphazard. It's not an accident. It's an on purpose, as I used to tell my children. Uh, so how is it then that we live carefully? How is it that we live intentionally? And Paul says the first component to living intentionally, to live, living carefully, is we live with wisdom. To live with wisdom. And then in telling us what it means to live with wisdom, he says one thing that, that people that live with wisdom do is they use their time wisely. Using the time wisely. Literally, it says they're redeeming the time. Buy up every opportunity to do God's will. Be wise with your time. Because, Paul says, the days are evil. We are living in a time where evil is very present and wisdom is scarce. So be wise with your time. Um, I'm going to quote a song. I'm going to have to give you a couple of true confessions about the song. First of all, it is from a Broadway musical. I have no idea which one. Secondly, I have no idea what the song means in context to the Broadway musical. So if it's some crazy Broadway musical with some really awful theme, I'm sorry, all I've heard is the song <laughs> sung by second true confession, Donny Osmond. So... <laughs> He's got an album of Broadway songs, and let me tell you, it's fabulous. Um, so, uh, but but I, as I've listened to this song, and especially the first couple lines, it has, especially at my advanced age, caused me to have such pause, and particularly a time in my life a few years ago, uh, a few years ago, a lot of years ago now, um, uh, when I first volunteered for Royal Family Kids Camp, and I thought, what have I been doing with my life? You know, there's so much more I could have been doing. And, and the, the song begins, I don't even know the name of the song, to be honest with you. But the song begins like this. It says, how have I come to this? How did I slip and fall? How did I throw half a lifetime away without any thought at all? Now, I'm past half a lifetime unless I plan on living to 104. But the, the, that thought of how did I throw that many years away without thinking about it? 
without living intentionally, without living on purpose. Secondly, Paul says about living wisely or, or what it means to live with wisdom is understanding the Lord's will. Now, again, we see this focus on understanding in Ephesians, the focus on the mind, as we've seen before. But we have a tendency to think of God's will as being sort of the major decisions in life, right? So should I marry? Is it God's will for me to marry this person? Is it God's will? I remember praying if it was God's will for me to go to Colorado to take the first teaching job. Now, mind you, it was the only job offer I had. <laughs> um, secondly, I had prayed for three specific things in a job. I had prayed that it would be uh, in a nice place to live, either close to home or a fun place to live. I had prayed that I would have the um, opportunity to teach both social studies and PE so I could figure out what I really wanted to teach and to coach. And I threw in in the prayer, um, and it would be fun to teach a class of health. I, I literally threw that in as you know, on the side of the prayer. And, and I had prayed that I would have the opportunity to coach. So the job offer comes to teach social studies PE, one class of health, coach volleyball and basketball in the mountains of Colorado. And what I said to the people was, would you give me a chance to pray about that? So I went to pray about it. And I really, I felt God laughing. Like, what do you need, a note in your Bible? This is what you asked for. So I called back and I said, yes. And we tend to look at God's will as those kinds of things. But biblically, scripturally, that's not what God's will means. I mean, those are important. But if we are living intentionally, if we are living in a manner worthy of the gospel, those decisions become easier. And the idea of what understanding what God's will is, is to understand what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. Um, and, and to live in accordance with God's will. That's wise living, and that is God's will for us to live in that manner, understanding how he wants us to live. Secondly, Paul says, how, how do we live intentionally? We live intentionally by being filled with the Spirit, as opposed to being filled with alcohol, which, you know, obviously, duh, leads to really stupid, stupid decisions, and unfortunately I could give you examples of that as well in my life, but I won't uh, do that right now, partly because we're online and my children might listen. No, they already know about it. Drunkenness is the height of folly. It is the height of foolishness. Talk about wasteful living. Talk about a waste of time. And is there anything worse than being the only sober person at a party? I mean, it's just, it is such a waste of time. It leads to so many bad things. And by contrast, Paul says that being filled with the Spirit causes us to overflow with thanksgiving, with praise with worship and thankfulness to God. And then the third thing that Paul says is part of living intentionally is to submit to one another. Now, we're going to spend time on that, so I'm going to skip over that for now, but we'll come back to that. I just want to give you a couple thoughts in general about this passage. Um, first of all, how can Paul command us to be filled with the Spirit? I mean, aren't we all filled with the Spirit? Don't we all have the Spirit if we are followers of Christ? The answer to that is yes, we do. So think of it this way. We would understand if somebody said, I'm filled with grief. Or if we said, that person is filled with knowledge. We would understand what that means. And, and Scripture talks about both those things, about being 
filled with things like that. And, and that means that it's descriptive of what's dominating us or what's controlling us at that moment. Paul is saying to allow the spirit to control us, allow the spirit to direct us. Now, we, we do not, in fact, we cannot control the Holy Spirit of God. He is in charge, but we can refuse to cooperate with him. Um, and so Paul is telling us to cooperate, to give the Spirit free reign to do as he wishes in our lives. Now, in this passage, there are what look like five commands, and, and Paul probably intended them as commands, but in the Greek, they're actually, um, they're actually participles. And he says, um, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns, singing and making music from your heart with the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father. And so we have these participles of speaking, singing, making music, giving thanks, and then finally submitting to one another. Of those five participles, did you notice that three of them have to do with music or singing? Um, in other words, worship. And Paul gives us two purposes of worship. One obvious, that worship means uh, to praise God. But secondly, Paul tells us, kind of surprisingly, that worship has a corporate dimension. Um, it's a teaching tool. Worship is a way that we remind each other of who God is and what he has done. And I think sometimes we don't realize that, that music, that hymns and songs are a way to speak truth into the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. The, the spirit-filled life that Paul describes here is just overflowing with that praise, with that worship, with that singing. I understand what this is like because I had a singing mother. Uh, in fact, there was a little part of me that was going to play for you her singing, and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do it. My, you're welcome. Uh, at my mother's memorial service, um, not too long before she died, a friend of hers, God bless her, who has also uh, passed away, talked her into making a record of her singing, uh, a recording of her singing for her children. Um, to have. And my mother at that advanced age didn't like to sing publicly so much anymore because her voice wasn't what it once was, which was fabulous. If you think Sandy Patty can sing beautifully and high, in fact, my father once said, that's Sandy Patty. She's got a little yell in her voice. Your mother shouldn't have any yell in her voice. <laughs> she had a beautiful, professionally trained soprano voice. And um, my mother asked, my mother said that at her funeral she wanted my eyes on the sparrow sung. And so we thought, why don't we have her sing it? Because that was one of the songs that she sang on that, on that uh, recording. And I thought about uh, bringing it. I have not listened to that uh, in the three years since she passed, and I, and I can't yet. But just trust me when I tell you, and some of you know, my mother had a beautiful singing voice, okay? And it was the perfect way to end her service, but I'm sorry, I can't 
I can't listen to it yet. But I have listened to it and did listen to it growing up many times. And I remember something happened to both of my parents when I was in about sixth or seventh grade. And all I can tell you was they knew Jesus before, but something, Jesus got a hold of their lives when I was in junior high. It was a good time for that to happen. And their lives changed. And I remember many times coming home to hear the Gaither Trio blaring in our house along with my mother singing. In fact, one of George Ann's, my next youngest sister's favorite memories is to come home and she's hearing the vacuum. But above Above the vacuum, she's hearing, let's just praise the Lord. And my mother's beautiful uh, uh, soprano voice, just blaring out praises. My mother sang, my mother praised and worshiped with all of her being. And that's what Paul is telling us to do here, that lives lived in the spirit overflow with that praise and that singing. And then in verse 21, Paul talks about mutual submission. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is a hinge verse because it looks back in the sense that part of living wisely, part of living um, a life that's worthy of the gospel is to submit to one another of Christ. But it's also looking forward in that it's going to become a key component to what are called household codes, to the way we treat one another in our families in just a minute. That word submission is the Greek word hypotasso. And it, it, literally it means to voluntarily come under or to arrange under. And the word picture here is, is one of a military formation, to come into step with. So if you've ever watched a, a military parade where everyone's marching, Everybody is marching just like that guy in the front. Everybody is coming under him and marching in step with him. That is the meaning of submission. Now, let me tell you before we go any further that submission is not an expression of worth or value. In Galatians 3.28, Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, uh, slave nor free, for we are all one in Christ. The ground at the foot of the cross is completely level. That is not an expression of value or worth. It is even not an expression of superiority because all over scripture it talks about Jesus submitting to the will of God by going to the cross. And yet in Philippians 2 we read that we should have the same attitude as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something of which to take advantage. So Jesus submitted to God and yet is completely equal to God. So submission has nothing to do with superiority or inferiority. Um, now, there are two possible interpretations for this verse 21. Some people would tell you that what it means is to submit to one another means every believer submits to every believer. Every believer is to submit to every other believer. Other people will tell you that what Paul is saying here is that every believer is to submit to those who are in authority over them. Now, the, and by the way, the two, uh, the two commentaries that I read, one said one and one said the other. And they're both really good, really good theologians. Uh, so the one who would say that every believer is supposed to uh, submit to every other believer would say that what follows then are examples of mutual submission. 
what follows is, in other words, how husbands and wives submit to one another, how parents and children submit to one another, how slaves and masters submit to one another. In other words, the wife is to submit to her husband, and the husband, by loving his wife as Christ loved the church, is submitting to his wife. Those who would say that what Paul is telling believers is to submit to those in authority, uh, they would say that Paul is calling believers to submit to those who are in authority to them, not every believer to every believer. So for what it's worth, which isn't much, what do I think Paul is saying? I believe that Paul is teaching, and you can disagree with me, that we are to submit to those in authority. And I believe that for several reasons. The first reason I believe that is in scripture, to one another does not always mean every person to every person. There are many cases where um, submit or or to to one another means something other than that. And just one example is Galatians 6.2 where Paul says, bear one another's burdens. That doesn't mean everybody bears everybody else's burdens, but it does mean if you have a burden and I can bear it, I should do that. That there are certain people whose burdens we can and should bear. And there are other examples too. Um, Another reason why I think Paul's talking about that is certainly with the other two relationships that he's talking about, we wouldn't say that parents are to submit to their children. We wouldn't say that bosses are to submit to their employees or that slaves are to submit or masters are to submit to their slaves. I think we tend to want to say that about husbands and wives because it makes it easier than teaching that we're to submit to them and that they are in authority over us. But I think that that, that they aren't actually. Even if husbands and wives is an example of mutual submission, which I don't agree with, but that the other two obviously are not. Um, Now, those who are in authority or the the masters and the fathers, parents and the husbands are to treat those under them with kindness and with consideration and with love, but that's not the same thing as submission. Which leads to what is for me the primary reason for believing that Paul is speaking, uh, saying that we are to submit to those in authority, is the meaning of that word hypotasso, the meaning of submission. And everywhere it is used in scripture, it means to voluntarily arrange under someone in authority. It is voluntary, It is a choice, but that is what it means everywhere. Nowhere does it simply mean to treat with kindness or with compassion or with love. To love our wives as Christ loved the church is a wonderful thing, but it is not submission. It is commanded of husbands, but it is not the same thing as submission. It is not a good interpretation of the word hypotasso. Submission is different than that. So with that in mind, let's read about husbands and wives. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. 
In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So that's the whole passage. These are, these, and including what would come next, what does come next with parents and children or fathers and children, as Paul says, and uh, with slaves and masters, are what were called household, co co household codes. And they were common in the ancient world. Um, Paul's purpose in this, in part, just in part, uh, was to show that neither he nor the church were interested in upending social convention. That he wasn't trying to start a cultural revolution with the church, which is part of why he doesn't just say slavery is bad. Um, however, there were real differences between sort of the Roman household codes or the household hold, how, how, am I, how am I not being able to say that? Household codes and with what Paul writes here. In fact, the fact that Paul would even address wives and children and slaves was unheard of. They were not addressed in the household codes of the Romans because they were, they were, not, they were less. They weren't worthy of being addressed. And, and even more provo provocative was the instruction given to those in authority gave those husbands, fathers, masters free reign to rule over their wives and their children and their slaves however they wished. And harshness was common. In fact, in some places it was even codified, where it said, you know, beat your kids and rule over your wives. In fact, one rabbi said, um, don't talk to women much, not even your wife. Uh, so there were places where that sort of harsh treatment was, um, was even within the code itself. So Paul says to women, to wives, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Or but, as the church submits to Christ. Uh, more literally. So what does it mean to submit to your husband as to the Lord? What that means is, holy cow, what that means is as part of your submission to the Lord, that in submitting to her husband, the wife is also submitting to God, that that is part and parcel of what it means to submit to God. Now, as I already told you, that word submit means to voluntarily come under authority come under his authority. To be, and I know it's not a fun word, but to be subordinate, to choose to be subordinate to him. Why? Because he is the head. He is the leader. He is the one in authority by God's design. Now, underlying this teaching is the concept of order. God is a God of order. We see that here. We see it in, his, in Paul's use of Genesis 2.24, for this reason. 
because of God's ordered way of uh, doing things, a husband will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife. The husband is the head of the household and Jesus is the head of the church by God's design. Now, Paul is going to tell us that the husband should love his wife as Christ loved the church and even lay down his life for her. But for now, he's making the point that it is God's order of things. It is God ordained that the husband is the head of the wife and the wife submit. It's not exactly the same as we talked about in the questions. Jesus alone is our savior um, and he is our ultimate authority. Uh, But that is... the the way God ordained things. Now, submit in everything, what does that mean? Submit in everything? Clearly, it doesn't mean in every situation because there are situations where there is abuse or where a husband might ask a wife to do something that is against God's will or against God's law that she should not submit. Indeed, she cannot submit. And there are cases in which a wife needs to get out of the relationship for her own safety and for her children's safety. We have a higher authority than our husbands. But to submit in everything does mean to submit in every area of our relationship. So what a wife can't say is, look, honey, I'll, I'll submit to you with this. I'll submit to you with you know, raising the kids. Uh, how we spend the money? No. See, that's mine. Uh, that does, and my beloved mother, you, y'all who think she was perfect, we used to get home from shopping and she'd say, just leave the clothes in the car, honey. We'll take care of it later. If my dad was home, yeah. She's also the one that because, took great advantage of the fact that my father didn't notice things for very long periods of time. And so she completely redid the dining room. And about six, eight months later, he said, is it different in here? Did you, did you just change this? No, sweetie, it's been that way for a long time. That's the way it's been. So we can't say, yeah, I'll submit. I'm okay with submitting to this, but not to this. Any more than we can tell Christ, yeah, I'll submit to you in this part of my life, but I want to maintain control of this other one. Now, Paul also talks to husbands, and he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, I'm going to stop there in the interest of time, but he tells husbands to lay down their very lives in service to their wives. And they they are not to rule over their lives. Nowhere in scripture will you find that. This This is the heart of a servant leader, which is an ethic that Jesus taught, that the way we lead is to serve. It is selflessness. This kind of husband serves his wife, cherishes his wife, defers to his wife, values his wife and her opinion, and is gentle with his wife. Who wouldn't want to submit to that? Paul also tells us that one of the purposes of marriage is to model or to mirror the relationship between Christ and the church. That's a marvelous mystery, as Paul calls it, and I really think that it is something that every believing couple should spend time pondering what that means and how are we doing in modeling that. I wish I had time, more time to talk about it. Um, so I, I'll just say this about that, though. If you've never been to a family life conference, go. It will teach you a lot of what it means 
to model the relationship between Christ and the church. So assuming that you might say to me, that, but what if my husband's not doing that? What if my husband doesn't love me as Christ loved the church? What if my husband's not a believer? I would say assuming that there's no sin involved, there's no abuse involved, you are to submit to your husbands. And um, God will bless you for that. There is blessing in doing that, even when you don't want to, and there are a whole lot of times I don't want to. Um, so then in verse 33, Paul gives just a summary of this whole thing. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. I love, uh, Emily, that, that one of the, Emily, that one of the studies is, a, uh, is the sort of sequel to love and respect, and that's what that, that book is about, is uh, this verse. And I really think, you remember that age-old question, maybe, you, maybe some of the younger ones haven't been asked this, but I remember being asked a number of times when I was younger, would you rather, if you had to choose, would you rather be loved or respected? And I remember saying respected because it was what I was supposed to say, but it wasn't true. I'd rather be loved. Are you kidding me? I would much rather be loved. If I have to choose, love me. Don't respect me, love me. And I think women are a lot that way. And I think men uh, crave respect. Uh, and not that the two are completely separate from one another and not that we have to choose between the two. But I think God knows that about women, and he knows that about men, and he commands husbands to love their wives and wives to love, or excuse me, to respect their husbands. So I want to do a couple points of application here uh, from this. First of all, talking about respecting our husbands, growing in respect. And I want to tell you that I came up with these together with my husband, which I don't think I've ever done in teaching. It's always been mine. I don't even like him looking at what I'm writing on the computer screen. It's mine. Ooh, that's bad. I just taught not to do that. Um, so here are a few ways that you can show respect to your husband. The first one was absolutely 100% Jeff. When I asked him, the first thing he said was, listen to him. And then he kind of laughed and said, even if he doesn't have much to say, I'm a very quiet husband. Uh, and I would say, perhaps, especially if he doesn't have much to say. Listen to him. Secondly, encourage him. Affirm his strengths. Tell him what it is you admire about him. Years ago, I put the kibosh on a job my husband was going to apply for because I told him it was beneath him, and I immediately regretted it. And I wrote him a note telling him how much... I loved and admired and respected his leadership of our family. It wasn't a long note. It was just letting him know that. That's still on his dresser, and that's probably been 20 years ago that um, that, that happened. Tell him, affirm him in that. Thirdly, also from my husband, don't nag. Can you imagine that, that a husband would say don't nag? He also told me you don't nag, so that was good. Uh, I remember years ago somebody telling me, I, I, the person shall remain nameless, you need to tell Jeff to do this. And I said, you know what, I already have, and I'm one mention away from nagging, and I'm not going to go there. And you know what, as women we do tend to nag sometimes, but just get this picture in your head to help you understand nobody likes nagging. Mom, 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 mom. Mom, mom, mommy, mommy, you have that picture? And in fact, why don't we answer on the first mom? No, no, we wait until like the 50th mom and go, what? You know, so we don't like to be nagged either. So don't nag. But the one that I want to tell you that I think is the most important of all is do not, do not speak 
derogatorily of him or belittle him, especially in front of other people. Nothing makes a man feel smaller than to be belittled or to be humiliated in public, particularly from the woman who's supposed to respect him. But not even behind his back, and never, ever to the children. Your children should hear you say nothing but wonderful things about your husband. I committed to this a long time ago when I was in a group of women and one woman started complaining about her husband and then it became an ep epidemic. Oh, that's what your husband did? Let me tell you what my stupid husband did. And I sat there and thought, please, dear God, don't let me do this to my dear, <coughs> sweet husband, and I made a commitment never to do it, so I'm telling you right now, if you ever hear me do it, stop me and confront me, because I do not want to do that. Application part two, growing in submission. How is it that we submit? What are some practical ways to submit to our husbands? And I'm going to tell you right here, right now, submission is hard. Um, but I would submit, pun intended, that it's a whole lot easier than our husband's calling to love us as Christ loved the church and even laid down his life for her. I'm about to make an understatement for those of you who know both Jeff and me. I am the stronger personality of the two of us. <laughs> by a lot. And it would be really easy for me to run roughshod over my sweet husband. I'm kind of like, uh, what Elizabeth Curtis Higgs said in personality, and you all know that by now, and that she'll come into her room, come storming into the room like a, like a steamroller, and then look around and go, where'd all the flat people come from? You know, I just roll everybody over. And early in our marriage, I probably did that. When we married, I was probably the spiritual leader of our relationship. But over the course of 27 years, I believe that I've learned that having the stronger personality doesn't necessarily mean you're the leader. And I do submit to my husband. God calls me to submit to Jeff. And I believe that he will bless me uh, because I submit to him. So here's some practical uh, suggestions. The first one, also Jeff's idea, is to pray for your husband. I heard a number of years ago is that it's hard to feel animosity towards someone for whom you are praying. Pray for your husband. Pray for his leadership of his family. Pray that God will guide him and teach him and mold him. And thank God for your husband. Secondly, pray for yourself and for your marriage. Um, and then thirdly, and that God would help you grow in submission. Thirdly, pray with your husband. With one possible exception, and maybe not even that one, I believe that praying with another person is about the most intimate thing we can do and about the most vulnerable thing we can do if we're honest to God in those prayers. Now, what about the difficult situations? What about these? And let me tell you, in 27 years, we've had some. In fact, we're kind of going through one uh, in the middle of one right now. Uh, what I have found and what I have done when I disagree with Jeff, uh, and there have been some big things and some little things, but this has been my prayer. Lord, change my heart or change his mind. And over the course of 27 years, God has done both of those things. There are times when God has changed my heart. It happened 
when God, or when Jeff dragged me kicking and screaming out of a church I loved and brought me here to this room, right here, and I did not want to be here, but I realized I needed to submit to my husband, and I will say publicly, I love that church, but he was right. He was right. Um, he changed, he's changed my heart in, in situations. Uh, when I started thinking about schooling for our kids, for our kids, oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm just about to get rid of it. Okay. Should I move it down? Okay. Keep my arm. Oh, yeah, right. Like I can do that. Teach without moving my arms. I, I visited every school I could possibly visit. And then I realized, oh, maybe I should consider homeschooling. It's a long story. But in the course of reading a book about homeschooling, I looked up at Jeff and I said, we're supposed to homeschool. And he said, I know. See, he was praying for me. He never had told me he knew that. But he knew it. God changed my mind. God's changed his heart a number of times. In fact, I wanted a second child. There's a reason why there are five years between our first two children. Mostly because, but for modern medicine, neither Josh nor I would be there. And when I was finally like, why can't we have another baby? He looked at me, get this, my, I have a wonderful husband. And he said, Amy, that night after you fell asleep, I looked at you and I realized I almost lost you both. And I don't want to put you through that again. Wow. But God changed his mind <laughs> a couple of times. Uh, and we had more children. God changed his mind. I told you there's a recent thing, and I don't want to go into details about it, but it's, it's a difficult one, and it's pretty serious disagreement. Now, part of the disagreement was misunderstanding. The first time he started talking about it, we were on our way to church, and I thought wrongly that he was several miles down the road on a major decision for our family, and he hadn't even mentioned it to me. And I had this deer-in-the-headlights look, and I finally said, we can't talk about this right now. We're on our way to church. Every song at church that day was, all my life is yours, I surrender it all to your name. Have your way, Lord, have your way. And I'm like, shut up! Why are you doing this to me? Um, but it's still not completely resolved. And Jeff has asked me to keep an open mind about this. And I have promised him that I have and I, I will. I've asked him to consider what this would mean for me and for our family if we decided to do it. And he has agreed to that. Ladies, I know that if it comes right down to it, I will submit to my husband because that is what God calls me to do. And I will be blessed for doing it. But I did tell Jeff, this is why submission stinks. <laughs> and that is true too. It's hard. It is hard. But I also know that my husband loves me as Christ loved the church. And he will not go miles down a road without understanding and making sure that I'm in line, I'm in step, I'm voluntarily coming under his authority. So I had an assignment for you that we've run out of time for, but if you have time later on today, I would love to have you come up with three action points that how God would have you apply not just this, but Ephesians 5 into Ephesians 6 in your lives. What would God have you do in response to that? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for today, uh, silly Mike and all. Thank you for the truth of your word. Uh, please, Father, I ask that you would uh, allow us to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, ladies. One more week.